Police responded to a 911 call. Dramatic video of gun insanity in the Bronx. Police releasing a new video of a person that they are still trying to track down. Defund the police is not the answer. Many people surveyed said they just don't feel safe in the city. It's a shooting outside of a store. This is Bo Deedles. True crime. Police this morning are searching for the person who turned this Harlem platform to a crime scene. A Red Apple Media Podcast Network production. Now, here's Bo Deedle. Welcome to Bo Deedle's True Crime Story. What I'm about to do today, and because of the sensitivity, is I have to disguise my guest. But this has to do with something that I learned about not too long ago, and I'm outraged what's going on. We all know about the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, over there in the Middle East. We all know what happened over there. And we also all know about the good Afghans that were over there who were supporting our troops, some of them dying, their family members being raped and brutalized and mutilated. And we know one thing. A lot of these people that were there helped our soldiers and prevented them from being killed by these Afghan Taliban people over there. And it's just something that when it came to my attention, you know, my true crime story, we talk about crime. This is an ultimate crime. And it's something that's going on now. And I need the people of America. And we're going to blast out a lot of sniglets on this thing because in reality, we're talking about a war that went on probably longer than any other war. And they were people, damn good people that were over there, saved a lot of Americans. And there's a damn lot of other people that are still there. And then the quickness, the quickness of us leaving didn't help things. There was a lot of evidence over there, a lot of names and all this stuff were left behind. And to my attention, I'm not a dumb guy, but my own knowledge, I looked into this a little bit, And a lot of these people that are in charge now of the new Taliban government were, in fact, part of the Taliban who were able to get these information and have lists of people. And I'm just outraged. So in reality, my guest is a former military guy or girl. You have to get to see what it is. That was over 23 years in the military. And for the last three and a half years, was a military contractor for the United States of America. And he's a person that has firsthand knowledge about what's going on. And now, even with the advent, I'm really scared because, well, if you want to come to America, just cross the Rio Grande. Who's crossing the Rio Grande? I don't know. But some of these issues that I want to talk to my guests are about the real enemies against the United States of America. And we know China... Russia and Iran, they're nations that are acting right now in Afghanistan, and they're all involved with the Taliban government, Kabul, all the major cities in Kabul, Kandah, Jadababab, whatever the hell the name is there. As example, Iran now is working with oil pipelines. China's working with mineral miners over there. And Russia's working with government advisors. They forget real fast when the Taliban there was being supported by the United States, shooting their frigging helicopters out of the sky. So I would like my guests to talk a little bit about the enemies now of the United States in Afghanistan. Thank you, Bo. I'd like to start off by saying thank you to you and thank you to WABC for this time. 
you know, there's a lot of topics we could talk about in the city, in this country, and in this world, but I do absolutely appreciate the time to talk about Afghanistan. I'm here today really talking on behalf of other vets and talking on behalf of Afghans that fought with us, and I appreciate it. You know, as far as me speaking about our people that are over there, when you got China, you have Russia, and then you have all these governments that are operating out of Afghanistan now, what are we looking for as far as the threat to the United States of America? All right, what we're looking for, Bo, the threats against the United States, like you mentioned, our top three enemies, Russia, China, and Iran. We'll start with China. The mining that's going on over there, well, I'll back up one minute on China. Even before the fall of Afghanistan, China had a footprint in Afghanistan. As early as the fall last year, August and September right after the fall, the contacts I had on the ground were telling me Afghanistan was being swarmed by China. At the government advising level and the mining operations that they already have were escalating by the day. It's estimated that there's anywhere between one and three trillion dollars worth of minerals there. So obviously China being one of our top three enemies, it's not in the best interest of the United States to have China with access to potentially three trillion dollars. Now, minerals, are we talking anything that supplies our batteries? Does that come out of there? Lithium, Bo. So in Afghanistan, there's natural supplies of lithium. Yeah. And there's also natural supplies of other essential minerals, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, what I want to talk about is, too, is that I remember we had al-Qaeda that was there. And they were even the enemy of the Taliban, who now the Taliban rules Afghanistan. And one of the issues, I think why you're here today, is one of the big issues is when we pulled out of there, regardless of the quickness or whatever, we pulled out of there, there was a lot of Afghan people that was very supportive of the United States of America. And our U.S. military intelligence communities spent 20 years building up this relationship and then all of a sudden, even their most elite, I know a little bit about this, their most elite forces, like our special forces, were trained by us. They were over there. They were mentored. They were the ones that would warn us when there was going to be an attack and all that. And we promised them we would never abandon them. I want you to go, and what has happened? Absolutely, Bo. I'll back up one second and talk about the Al-Qaeda piece first. The danger that we have there, although Al-Qaeda is a natural enemy of the Taliban, that doesn't mean that they're not on friendly terms or they're not going to work together to some degree. Al-Qaeda had a safe haven there, as we all know, in the late 90s, which led to the attacks on 9-11. So now the Taliban is again in charge of the country the same way they were throughout the 90s. Now, the Taliban does not have global operations. They, uh, sorry, global operations or aspirations. They're happy to just have control of the country and outside what we consider the Afghan borders. So in other words, Taliban ain't our problem. They like what they're doing in their own country. But what about al-Qaeda? Right. Now, al-Qaeda is different, and ISIS-K for that matter. They've got global aspirations, both to attack us again in the West, attack us here in the United States, and they're patient. Just like we learned before, they'll wait as long as they need to to build up the logistical pipeline, the operations pipeline, the administrative pipeline, the financial pipeline to plan and execute an attack again. Now, I will shift and tie that into what you mentioned about our Afghan brothers over there that work with us. So the majority of our 20 years there, 
what we did was we built up from the ground, we created, trained, mentor, and advise an elite group of Afghan special operations forces. I won't get into all the different spokes of those special operations forces, because that's an entirely other topic unto itself. We'll just call them the Afghan special operations forces and use that as the umbrella. These are not just your average military and intelligence units. These are the elite of the elite of the elite. These guys have language skills. They've been vetted. They've got security clearance. These guys can be trusted. They fight side by side with us. They plan side by side with us. They execute raids against targets side by side with us. We live, breathe, eat everything shoulder to shoulder with these guys and the interpreters as well. An interpreter on the battlefield is absolutely essential. It's critical. And it's not just say when when you're out, outside the wire or conducting some sort of combat operation, it's the things that lead up to that and the relationship building. If you don't have that interpreter to bridge that cultural and language gap between you and let's say an Afghan village leader that you're meeting with, if you can't form a relationship with that Afghan leader through that interpreter, you're not going to get the intelligence, the information, and the general relationship that you need to operate in a country like Afghanistan. Now, when we abruptly left Afghanistan, was there some sort of deal? Now, I did a lot of my own studying, so a lot of the stuff I'm talking about now. Was there any kind of plan for the extraction of these Afghans who are at risk from the Taliban. Now, I heard there were certain special immigrant visas. I heard about all these U.S. refugee admissions. And God knows, right now, we have an open border that everything is coming to our border. What has happened to that extraction from Afghanistan for the people that supported our troops and protected our troops? What has happened with it? That's a very important question, Bo, which is probably the main thing that I want to hit here. So the most at-risk Afghans are the ones I mentioned, the Afghan Special Operations Forces and the interpreters that worked with us. There are two programs that the United States government has to get Afghans safely here to the United States. One is the SIV, Special Immigrant Visa Program. The next is the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, U.S. RAP. The unfortunate problem with the SIV program, which has been in existence for years, is that that pipeline is only structured for Afghans that work for us, not with us. And those two words are the problem there, Bo. Afghans that work for us, interpreters fall under that category as an example. They worked as a contract for the United States. And yes, that program exists, but the program is unfortunately wildly overwhelmed. There aren't enough people in the United States, there aren't enough people employed by the United States government to handle the volume of these packages. And even before the fall of Afghanistan, I'll tell you, I would say the average from interpreters that I worked with over years and years and years there, if you submitted your package, you end up from, from the day you submit the package, which is a lengthy process, to stepping foot in the United States, it could be five, six years. So, and that was before the fall. So this happened where the process, where we had someone that was protecting our troops, was on our side, and we knew they would face 
probably death. They put this thing into effect would take five, six years then, and there was nothing to be done with this. I mean, it sounds ridiculous when someone's under threat, them and their family, and they've been helping us. This is what was enacted? I don't think anyone knew it would take that long, Bo. Just, you know, government bureaucracy can't be predicted. Hold on. Hold on, I'll say it. They didn't damn care. That was the problem. These people were helping us. Now these families of these people, these interpreters, people that helped our soldiers are being murdered, raped, tortured, and this is the way our government thanks them? It's a very unfortunate situation, Bo, and like I've told you offline in my home, I've got a box of burner phones where I'm still communicating with these guys on the ground, these interpreters on a daily basis, and you know, you Cry your eyes out if you heard the conversation that we have or saw the text message treads that we have going on back and forth on the desperation and the situation that these guys are in, Bo. Well, so in other words, I want to find out what is the impact? How many soldiers did we have over there? And what is the impact to the guys like you who were in the military and also as special ops as a contract over there, what is the impact on my veterans that I take my hat off for? And I've never been a veteran, but I feel as though the veterans are the most important people in our country that gave their lives and now are not being rewarded enough. And this is a perfect example. They're pleading. And what about, you know, I mean, I'm going to talk about my own feelings because I don't want you to get in any problems, Because even though you're being disguised. I am outraged over this. Why isn't anybody care? Was it because of the quick exit that we didn't have a plan? What do you feel on that? Absolutely. Great question, Bo. If you could allow me to go back for one minute, I need to make the distinction. Those two programs I mentioned, the Afghan military guys, the Afghan special operations and intelligence guys, don't fall under the category for either of those two programs. So there isn't a program. It's it's not like that program is broken or it's tied up in red tape. The program does not exist. So I need to make that distinction. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on, because this is important. So what we're saying is the Afghans that were in their special ops, their, their most elite group, didn't come under this. So in other words, you had the interpreters under this, and that, but the other ones that really fought at our side were as important as the interpreter. Does it fall under this? That's correct, Bo. They don't fall under that category. They don't fall under what it takes to for the criteria of those two programs. And these are the guys, like I said, that fought shoulder to shoulder with us, that we gave a sacred promise at the tactical level that they would not be abandoned. Wow. Now, now, again, we're talking about what's going on there. Now, again, we go back to the impact to the vets that were there that made friends with these. I know we have about 20 vets that commit suicide every day, although that's not that important. All we worry about is one incident that happened in Minnesota, and we don't care about anything. We have 20 vets, I believe, that are committing suicide. Do you feel as though a lot of them have from this Afghan war that that impacted them to do this horrific thing? Yeah, absolutely, Bo. The impact on combat vets, if the stats are correct, I don't have the stats in front of me, but the mental health cases in the Veterans Affairs program has skyrocketed since last August. And, you know, I'll be honest with you with it, I was in my 30s before I was in what anyone would call legit, no BS combat, and this has affected me. So if you want to peel it back, Bo, and think about a kid 
who dealt with this and fought with these guys who were 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. You know, he didn't have another decade of maturity, another decade half of maturity or so that others did. I'm just throwing that out as an example. So this absolutely has Im I impacted combat vets because for most of us, like myself, my time in Afghanistan were defining moments of my life. You know, there was the man I was prior to going there the first time, and there's the man I am now. And I say that in a positive way, not a negative way, but for a lot of military guys over the last 20 years, they joined because of 9-11. They fought through Afghanistan for the last 20 years. This was a defining moment of their lives. You talk to a Vietnam vet now or the few World War II vets that we have, no matter what they accomplished throughout the course of their lives after that, be it in business or charity work or their families or whatever the case may be, I would guarantee the moment that defined them is their time in combat ball. You know, and you know yourself, I started about five years ago, six, ah, five, how about 16, 18 years ago, I have, uh, for the Marine Corps birthday, one of my dear friend's son, uh, John Myers, David Myers, was blown up in Iraq. So we started a dinner with six Marines. Now I'm very honored to say we're going to be at Sparks Restaurant for the birthday of the United States Marine Corps. Now we're over 400, 400. 100 Marines will be there, and it's a great night. And I'm very proud that uh, I was part of putting it together, even though I was not a Marine and I was not in the military. I had great, great admiration for the military, for all you guys. Now, you know, the military and the intelligence relationships with these other countries and organizations have a hard time working with the USA, with the United States of America. Why is that? Well, Bo, I think the problem we're going to have here, and hopefully we can head this off, and I don't have the answer how, but that sacred bond that I mentioned that was formed at the tactical level with the Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan, specifically I'll highlight the United States Army Special Forces because their bread and butter is working by, with, and through the local population, the local military. So the perception from the countries that we work with around the world is you have to step back and put yourself in their shoes, in their boots and say, if the United States would abandon these guys that they work shoulder to shoulder with for 20 years, we're not going to have too much confidence. Well, so you're saying now, I'm getting what you're saying. So what you're saying is, because of what we did in Afghanistan, we were there 20-something years, whatever we were there, longest war, and we just abandoned them. Now we want our NATO partners to support what we want to do. And they look at this and they said, they dropped the Afghans like a hot potato pancake. Why do we want to believe America? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying, Bo. That's something that we need to rectify. And, you know, the, it's not just the military and the intelligence organizations that that need to shoulder that burden and make those repairs you know if we're talking seriously you have 365 days a year 365 i'm putting it on down here you got 20 vets that are committing suicide 10 6 12 13 13 3 3 4 so we're talking about per year i can't believe so in other words we're having over 43 100 vets committing suicide a year? Those are the numbers that I hear, Bo, and I want to believe that they're not true. 
you know, there's debate on how official that number is or isn't. But I mean, I would bet my life it's increased since August of 2021, Bob. Yeah. And now, and again, I don't want to get political here. This ain't a political thing. It ain't a Republican or a Democratic thing. But the reality is we have a head of the, what's his name there? Uh, Lloyd Austin. He's the, and now I'm talking, this guy ain't talking. I'm talking Lloyd Austin, a complete fool, defense the secretary that pulled out, gave him all our equipment, $80 billion worth of military equipment. Then you got uh, General Miley there, the chief of staff, the head of the joint chiefs of staff. Uh, I mean, didn't they have a half a brain to realize that what was going to happen to our loyal people that was in back of us? I just can't understand why people just forget. It's like Finzies. We don't care about them. I listen to what you tell me about the text message, people crying, pleading with you. My wife was just murdered. My daughter was raped. Please, America, help us. I can feel this pain. You know what I want to do? I want to get on a plane and go where you go back there and, and you got to teach me to use some of this new equipment. That's all. Hey, Bo, if I could shift to a positive note on this, can I do that? Please. Bo, I've got a positive story, and right now I'm speaking on behalf of a huge cadre of veterans that stepped up and pulled off a miracle last August. I don't know if you've caught this in the news, you're aware of this, I can tell you more about it online, but as indications and warnings were hitting that Kabul was going to fall last August, not just one group of veterans, numerous groups of veterans got together unofficially, just dudes vets, like, retired like your, military like guys. Yourself. Yes, Bo, like myself. Guys in the intel world, we started contacting each other, started contacting our contacts on the ground, and figured out organically how to get as many as possible out as Kabul was falling, as the last birds were headed out. It would take 10 entire podcasts just to get into that. And it's already covered in numerous other podcasts and books that just came out. But, Bo, a miracle was pulled off last August. I don't know what the number is. I think 70,000. I could be wrong off the top of my head. Wow. But groups of veterans got together with, informally with their own contacts, their own money, their own experience working in the gray world of war, in the gray world of the special operations community, in the gray world of the intelligence community, and figured out how to get a huge number of Afghans the interpreters and our special operations guys out with us. And the story of that, like I said, couldn't possibly be be captured here in this podcast, but there are still groups. They're now more formalized and this is not going to stop. The guys that I talk to and I talk to them on a weekly, sometimes a daily basis, the guys that are spearheading this bow, some of these guys, it's their own money. They've emptied their retirement accounts. They've quit their jobs. Wow. They had sacrificed time from their families. That's how committed they are to the cause of the Afghan Special Operations Forces and interpreters. And like I said, people can look this up. I'm not going to get into all the names and the organizations now, but a miracle was pulled off last August, and it's got to continue. Wow. You people listen to what this, young, this gentleman's saying. We're talking about our vets who have given their service to our country, who go back over there to rescue people that saved their lives and helped them. This is what's going on without any kind of real help from the United States government. And I'm taken back. I'm blown away. And I've been talking to you over the last year or so about this. I talked to Congressman Peter King, who's one of my dear friends who has been on a lot of big committees. 
one thing I can promise you, and I'm looking at you right now, I promise you, I got a lot of breath, and you know I could yell, I could scream, and I'm one tough cop, but I'm one tough supporter of our vets. And right now I can promise you, hopefully, when we take over the United States Congress, I will be a spearheader for you that will go to my friends in the United States Congress, uh, whoever takes charge of that, and we're going to visit this immediately and see what we could do more to organize this and get the rest of these people out that want to go. I know there was a lot of bribery involved. I don't give a crap. We gave $150 billion to the Iranian government with a plain load of cash for nonsense on this deal. Certainly, we could spend American money for these people that were helping our troops. And today, they probably saved, what do you figure they saved over the years? Since last August? No, since Afghan. The ones that cooperated, the soldiers. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, there How many Americans no were saved? Because of them. Bo, I wouldn't even know what the numbers are. It's in the thousands. When I say these guys have fought with us shoulder to shoulder and as brothers, they would take the bullet for us. They would take the IED blast for us. They appreciated so much that we were in their country supporting them, working with them, training with them, fighting with them, teaching with them, living and breathing with them as brothers. They would take the bullet for us, Bo. Well, you know, to talk about this thing, You've got me to drink the Kool-Aid. You got me on board on this and all the power I have. Now I want my listening audience to understand what we're talking about right now. We're talking about one is the effect on our military. We're losing so many people committed. And some of that effect has to do with guys and gals that came back from Afghanistan that can't understand, can't relate to why our government is leaving these people that helped save our Americans' lives over there and just leave them to be slaughtered by the Taliban. And we don't have to go far. We don't have to watch that many movies to know how bad they are. And God knows what they're doing to these women and children and these people that were supportive of us. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to put up on my website some kind contact information where people who want to get involved in this and can be supportive of me and my friend here, who I can't identify, but he would give his life up tomorrow for one of the people that has saved his life over there. I know it. And he lives it day in and day out. And when you wake up in the morning, you're worrying about maybe making your payroll. He's worrying about one of these Afghans that maybe saved his life or his partner's lives. This is something very serious, and I'm on board. Is there anything else you'd like to add on this? Yeah, I'd like to end on another positive note, Bo. You know, wars are ugly things, and there's nothing more complicated than a war. But, you know, despite what you see in movies and books and things along those lines, it, there's things that go on in war, things that go on in Afghanistan There are positive. It's not all killing bad guys. It's not all bad guys killing us. During the course of those 20 years now, some of this may not be relevant anymore, unfortunately, but building schools, building roads, building hospitals, and the relationships that are formed with Afghans from the kids to their parents to maybe fathers that we fought with in the early 2000s, then we fought with their sons in the late 2000s. Those relationships and those experiences, along with the infrastructure, 
you know, a lot of that may not matter now, but it is important to highlight those positive things, though. Again, they can't reach out to you, but I'm going to put some stuff on my website. You can go to investigations.com. I like to devote different groups and different ways that people can get behind. Now, you know, I've been doing this one tough podcast, True Crime Stories, and we talk about murders. We talk about all these big investigations. But truly... This is a true crime story, and this is a true crime story that continues. In reality, all it's about is one thing. It's about us knowing what's going on. And again, it reflects again to our NATO partners, to partners around the world. If we did this to the great Afghan people that were supporting us, what would we do to them? And again, I'm very happy that you had you on board. I wish that I could identify it because you know what? They call me one tough cop. I'm not going to mention your name, but you're one tough guy, and I love you, and I'm glad that you're here today to tell me and let the people of America know what's going on. Again, I'm going to put on my website any and all information about what we spoke about, and I have everybody, please tune in, tell your friends about this podcast. I think this is one of the most important podcasts that I've ever done. And thank you for tuning in. Until next week, thank you very much.